मास्टर क्लास इट वॉज अ समर इंटर्नशिप फॉर द टू न्यू रिक्रूट्स लता एंड रवि बोथ फॉर यंग एंड अट्रैक्टिव and they ramped up the oomph factor in the architect's dusty office tenfold everyone wanted them to stay in where they could be becked and called for all manner of trivia just to see these beautiful young things moving and talking and functioning with godlike grace but in the big boss's chat with them they'd both said they had no experience of actual clients and while they were excited about everything and expecting to learn a lot client visits were the one thing they really hoped they'd get some solid experience of and she'd promised them she'd ensure they would so earnestly gripping their bags full of documents drawings and notebooks they'd been trailing along with her every day for weeks and this day she'd finally thrown them a juicy bone a site visit and three client interactions alone just the two of them the excitement was exploding out of their faces they were reminded they were representing the big boss and always to keep that in mind to keep their eyes and ears open at all times to make notes of good and bad not to antagonize anybody to be unfailingly polite and to work as a team and off they went with their eyes shining the site visit was a doddle the contractor was an old hand he knew how to handle these babes in the wood he saw the likes of them every year didn't he and he gave them a good round trudging them through the project level by level and pointing out various points of interest answering their interminable questions and curiosities The kids enjoyed that hugely and only agreed to leave when he shunted them out so he could get on with his work. For them everything was new. Everything was learning. Nothing like the cobwebby classes at college. They bounded eagerly towards the next task, the client visits. This was exciting for the kids, but most professionals even in diverse fields agree that clients are the worst part of any job they never know their own minds and they won't listen to the professionals so interactions are often mindless and the professionals have to be the adults and exercise infinite patience and understanding while gently pulling them away from the ridiculous being the client view towards the sublime being the professional view the first visit had been confirmed only the previous day at the home of a middle-aged couple let's call them the peas after having specified the time in a most strident manner and repeatedly insisting not to be late and keep them waiting mrs p had gone out and mr p was in his bath when the kids arrived exactly on schedule sometime later mr p presented himself still rosy and moist from his bath and smelling of expensive cologne The two polite kids listened to his harangue for the next 20 minutes diligently making notes and not arguing back though he spouted what even they recognized to be the most arrant nonsense 
Lata fixed her eyes on her notepad because every time she looked up, she caught Mr. P talking to her chest. When she tried to catch his eye and embarrass him, he'd given her a wolfish grin as if to say how lucky she was to have his appreciation. Ravi noticed the sleazy byplay but was apparently as frozen into inaction as she was. As soon as Mr. P's diatribe ended, Lata gathered her belongings and her assaulted dignity and left, leaving Ravi to say their thank yous and to follow. They didn't discuss it. It was awkward. They didn't really know each other so well. They rode in silence to the next stop, an office. They had only to hand over some documents to a secretary, which ought to be quick and painless. They went up in the lift, still diligently avoiding each other's eyes, found their way to the correct office and had just handed over the large manila envelope to the secretary as instructed when the door of the inner chamber opened and out strode the boss. His smarmy smile, oozing cream, instantly rattled the already shaken Lata. Who is this lovely vision? He boomed, eyes raking Lata lasciviously from top to toe. They've brought those papers you were expecting from the architect's office, sir, and they are just leaving, the secretary said. The kids needed no second telling and fled as fast as they could out the building. They'd met this man before with their boss and he'd been crisp and businesslike and not even noticed their existence. But without the umbrella of her presence, he'd seen them, Lata, only as prey. They were sickened. There was only one more stop. It was another home visit. They made themselves go. Ravi hesitated on the pavement and gingerly suggested to Lata that she might prefer to wait outside. He could go in alone. There were only some swatches to be collected. He'd be in and out in a jiffy. But she declined. So they went in together. Sat down in the elegant drawing room and waited, looking around at all the beautiful things, Lata holding a file up in front of her as a shield. A few minutes later, Mrs. M, shall we call her, drifted in in a pale yellow silk wraparound dressing gown at two in the afternoon. Her feet were nestled in fluffy white mules, her hair was bundled messily into a clip, her tiny hands were tipped in shocking pink and her wrap was not always wrapping around her. She dropped limblessly onto a sofa as if she'd just spent the morning doing exhausting things. She chatted with them kindly, asking casually about studies and work, offering refreshments and sending for delicate little whatnots from the kitchen. You poor darlings running around in the hot afternoon. I'm sure they don't give you an AC car, do they? Where are you going from here? Will I ask Balu to drop you? He's got no work just now anyway. She was amusing and they both relaxed and smothered their grins. Seemed harmless enough, if a bit scatty. After 15 minutes or more of all this, she was politely reminded they were there at her request to pick up something. 
She nodded as if in dawning realization and looked around her as if expecting the swatches to magically materialize. When they didn't, she asked Ravi to bring her a bell which was lying on a table hardly a step away and patted the sofa next to her, inviting him to sit there. He chivalrously jumped to it. He brought her the bell, but in the taking of it, she feathered her pink-tipped fingers over his hand and held his eyes a fraction too long. That was evidently too much for Ravi, unused as he was, being male, to being groped everywhere he went. He pulled back his hand as if scorched and sat beside her only in name, tucking himself into the furthest corner of the sofa, bolt upright, all the amusement of the half-open wrapper and the kind thoughts engendered by the kitchen delectables and the offer of the AC car, gone in a flash. Mrs. M didn't seem to notice his reaction at all as she rang the bell and instructed whoever it was who responded to bring her hand back. And while they waited for it, she opened up a private line of conversation with Ravi. Where did he live? And where had he been to school? Ignoring Lata as if she wasn't even in the room. Keeping the instruction about not antagonizing anybody front and center, Ravi answered as politely, though as briefly, as he could. Lata should have been relieved to be out of the line of fire for a change, but she was shivering with suppressed rage and tension. She tried repeatedly to insinuate herself into the exchange, but Mrs. M had eyes and ears only for Ravi, who was plainly not enjoying the sunshine of her attention. The handbag was brought, as large as a suitcase, and they waited on tenterhooks while she rummaged inside it, pulling out envelope after envelope and a variety of keys and jars and pouches until she finally found the bundle of swatches she was looking for. Before she could even blink, Lata was standing in front of her with her hand outstretched. Thank you, ma'am. I'll take that. Ooh, Miss Bossy Boots, she said, actually deigning to look at Lata for the first time. Lata accepted the small bundle of swatches in silence, matching the sweet seductress smile for smile as she kept her eyes firmly away from Ravi, who'd, poor fellow, almost pushed himself through the arm of the sofa. He looked so pathetic it would have been funny if it had been a laughing matter to begin with. Lata boldly shook hands with Mrs. M, thanked her for her kindness and hospitality, and assured her she'd get the swatches into the right hands. Mrs. M made as if to get up, but Lata begged her not to. They'd see themselves out. And keeping Ravi on her other side, from where he gave Mrs. M a small, stiff, silent nod by way of farewell, she extracted him, unharmed, from the spider's web. They scrambled down the stairs in silence. But outside the building, Ravi stopped and caught her wrist firmly. Thanks, Lata, he said. I can't begin to say how much I appreciated that. I'm still a bit shaky. And I feel terrible that I didn't stand up for you earlier. I didn't know how to. But I'll know next time. I just received a master class. Lata grinned mischievously at him, recovering quickly now that they'd escaped the jaws of death. 
Aren't you glad you didn't leave me on the doorstep this time? The eyes have it. It was a long time ago. But that wretched man had really messed up her head. He'd been easily in his thirties, and she, a traumatized and innocent sixteen, an orphan, landed on her maternal uncle and aunt, who saw him as a quick way to be rid of her, an illegal way, given she'd been underage by a mile. But did they care? She'd been stunned to realize how little they cared. No adult had taken her side, not even the ones whose job it had been to be on her side. They'd all been sympathetic towards the uncle and aunt. How long was one to feed someone else's child? This man was willing to take her off their hands for free. That was an opportunity to be grabbed and not to let trivial concerns of illegality or the minor matter of the rights of a child come in the way. Her schoolmates had raised a ruckus. And he'd retreated in the face of their boisterous opposition. But after that, she'd known it was just a matter of time, and the first opportunity she'd got—the police recruitment drive—she'd jumped at it and left the uncertain shelter of her uncle's home. Yet, even after all these years, memories of him remained strong. His twisted brow and the strange eyes. One larger, one smaller, and slightly lower set were fresh in her mind. It had been tough for a woman to rise in these ranks. The male officers had thought to ride roughshod over her, but they'd underestimated her at their peril. For she was physically strong, mentally fit, and strategically clever. You couldn't get this far without clever. She hoisted herself into the front seat. And as they cruised to HQ, her eyes automatically scanned the streets. She rapped out a series of directions to the backseat boys, her affectionate name for her lower ranks. Though it was hard, unrelenting work under her command, foot soldiers vied to join the ranks, and no one ever left voluntarily. She was constantly grooming her backseat boys, a term which included the girls, by the way. And they were always transferred before they reached full fruition. But they took her systems and efficiency wherever they went. So as a result, she had loyal supporters everywhere, men and women in khaki, who would go out of their way to help her. They formed an informal countrywide network that functioned under the official radar. She tapped her baton on the dashboard, and the driver brought the jeep quickly to a halt. Back up. She said tersely, "The back seat was instantly on alert. They recognized that tone. To the temple," she told the driver. 
eyes seeking outside for whatever it was that had alerted her. She tapped the baton again and the driver paused. Oni, that middle-aged man in the black checked shirt near the third from right flower cellar? I want photos and ID. Keep it casual but get the basics. Check a few others for effect. Sonia, go with him. 45 minutes at HQ. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yes, ma'am. He's with the young girl in the blue sari, Oni replied. He and Sonia already on the road. The vehicle sped off, leaving the two to follow her instructions. Everyone wondering what had aroused her interest in the perfectly ordinary looking father and daughter duo and how she picked them out in the temple crowd. But there must be something in it for she was really wrong. Oni and Sonia reported in before the stipulated 45 minutes and not a second too soon by her reaction. They handed over a cell phone containing photographs. She took only a glance then closed her eyes and slumped into her chair. And two chaps almost jumped to her side. Her spine had never been known to touch the back of that chair. Shock and worry were etched on every brow. Her eyes were still squeezed shut and she was evidently struggling with something. She tightened up again with a deep breath, caught Uni's eye and nodded for his report. Uni had the basic data plus one unexpected fact that the young 18-year-old with him was not his daughter as had been generally assumed but his wife she nodded knowingly she looked as young as a daughter but had the body language of her wife that's what had caught her eye in the first place they needed to sharpen up and observe not just see i want him turned inside out all the facts and beyond the facts dig unearth every single link in the chain use the network and they were dismissed none the wiser about what they were looking for the reconnaissance started and in only days the facts started tumbling out with an almost unseemly haste as if they'd been waiting years for someone to put them together and they were damning there was hardly a state where he wasn't known big cities small towns tiny villages everywhere they looked someone recognized him he'd been in their sights but he'd always managed to skip clean suspicions had been rampant but somehow they hadn't stuck women had an unfortunate tendency to die around him young women moreover young women he was married to they'd already found nine cases and there might be more who knew they were still digging he married them young very young he kept getting older but his preference for the first bloom of adolescence remained unchanged they were married bringing a small or large dower they lived blissfully together till her money ran out he was a caring and devoted husband no reproach could be brought home to him on that score each marriage was ostensibly happy except for one thing they were all childless sometime during that first year the young wife would be packed off to her parents home for a vacation and would die there 
he was always far away when it happened. Of course he was investigated. But there was never anything linking him to the deaths. Not once in nine. He would sit out the investigation patiently and leave with his reputation unstained, breaking off all further relations with her family. What was there to keep them together anymore? Each investigating officer had been damn suspicious, but hadn't been able to bring the guilt home to him. He'd walked in each case. Not one in nine even knew about the others. This current marriage was almost a year old. They'd come visiting the temple hoping for the blessing of a child. They were on a nine-day roster of daily morning and evening pujas. Her eagle eye had caught them and her backseat boys across the country dug deep to get her the facts she sought. One of her former protégés from out of state mentioned that the wife in his case, number three, had been on some vitamin tablets. The husband had told her they would help her to conceive and the poor illiterate woman had accepted them gratefully and taken them faithfully every night. The medication had been scrutinized naturally but had proved to be authentic vitamin pills and nothing else. But instantly, all the other eight confirmed vitamin bottles on their cases too. And as of day five, the new wife was observed taking out a bottle of pills and shyly taking one after dinner every night under the fawning approval of the suspect. Pills or capsules, she'd asked. And the lot of them across the nine zones almost hit their heads. Capsules it was, of course. The whole nefarious business fell tidily into place. After the nine days of puja, the couple spent another week in the city. Quiet days, but torrid nights, according to the shift staff. They heard talk of the wife going home for a while. She should rest. The puja might be taking effect. He would pick her up again in a week or two. The backseat boys were raring to go. But she was cool and patient. He escorted his bride to her hometown and left early the next morning. Immediately, a policewoman swooped in and confiscated the vitamin bottle. Another team had eyes on him. He couldn't have changed his mind without their knowing. The bottle was sent off for analysis. There were only 12 capsules in it. As expected, one, just one, had been tampered with. It contained a slow-release drug, enough to do the deed, with no saying when she would select that particular capsule, only surely well after he'd left. And once it had slid down that slender throat, there was no evidence to link its contents back to the vitamin bottle. She could have picked up the toxin anywhere. Food poisoning was the usual fall guy. The rest of the capsules always proved to be innocent. And of course, he never intended returning until it was over, whenever that was. The arrest was accomplished with minimum fanfare. He had no idea what hit him. He'd got away with financially draining and killing at least nine women. He'd been careful to spread himself around geographically. How had his master plan been foiled? 
especially when the latest victim was still alive and kicking. She stepped up to him as he was brought out in handcuffs. He didn't seem to recognize her. She recognized him all right. He had a twisted brow and strange eyes, one larger, one smaller and slightly lower set. Curbside Angels myself briefly in the mirror. It was a simple red silk sari with a gold border, but I looked slender and cheerful and that would have to do. It wasn't much in comparison to most wedding saris I knew, but ours was just a civil ceremony, so no need for all the bells and whistles. And I'd get a lot more wear out of this than out of an elaborate Banarasi or Kanchipuram silk It cost infinitely less too and I didn't have money to just chuck about so it was entirely suitable on all counts. Plus, who did I need to impress? There'd be only the two of us. Even our witnesses would be the magistrate's clerks who had to be paid for their services. The sari was red. Tradition was served. Deepak had opted for a creamy silk kurta and dhoti with a thin gold edging, formally pleated and all, and also just as versatile and reusable as my choice. We'd discuss the matter in advance, of course. There was the minor matter of the wedding photos. We could not just turn up in our office clothes. I'd ordered very nice flower garlands, thick and full-bodied, in pink and white roses. They would cover both our chests most comprehensively. And only an extremely nosy person would notice the inadequacies of our dress and not our joyfulness. Though I admit, there's no shortage of extremely nosy people. Moreover, in any case, most people would be looking at my face, not at anything else. And quizzically at Deepak, wondering why such a handsome man should marry someone who looked like me. I wondered it myself constantly and frequently, so I don't blame them. It's quite a normal reaction. I've asked Deepak so many times and ridden roughshod over his ridiculous reply that my face was not the whole of me, that he's now forbidden me from asking again. And so when the thought resurfaces, I have to just swallow it whole. I've had this face my whole life and still I avoid the mirror. I can't understand why anyone would choose to wake up and see it first thing every morning. That's just crazy. I have a hideous birthmark, you see. It's very engagingly called a port wine stain. But it's nothing near as high class as that. It's massive and ugly and red and puckers half my face. It emerges from my hairline above my left brow near my temple. 
It crosses over the top of that brow and the top of my nose, proceeding diagonally over half my right cheek, passing under my right ear and disappearing into my hairline again. It also covers half my head, under the hair, but that's not much of a bother. And if that's not enough, it has moods. Sometimes it's quiescent and pale pink. Sometimes it's angry and splotchy red. It's triggered by emotions, hormones, food, weather, anything it takes its mind to. It's a monster I've shared my whole life with. Doesn't help matters that everyone I meet, strangers I see in the street, all are normal and unmarked. Plastic surgery is not an option. The monster is too large, covering eyes, nose, ears, not to mention that it would cost an exorbitant sum. We couldn't afford a personalized fitted mask, which I lusted for after I heard about the Phantom of the Opera, so I used a veil initially. It was cumbersome and I was an overactive child, so I flung it aside one fateful day and that was the end of that. I would take whatever came. No one played with me anyway. I played ball, climbed trees, flew kites, cycled about, everything, on my own. I read books and created whole dramas for which I sang and danced and played all the parts, including that of the beautiful princess. I had, still have, an extremely fertile mind. My imagination is something I could always safely dive into and disappear. With my gregarious personality, sales would have been ideal for me. But I cautiously opted for software. The computer doesn't cringe and avert its gaze or stare or ask intrusive personal questions. Lunchtimes were spent safely at my desk rather than in the open canteen. I didn't encourage approach and people kept their distance, pointing unsubtly and whispering from afar. I learned to live with that and to be grateful I had a stimulating and interesting job. I am damn good at my work and I have earned every promotion ten times over. But socially, I am a liability as we have already established. And I am so reclusive that I am not manager potential. In terms of skill, I should have had it years ago. But, well... One must play the best one can with the cards one's been dealt. That's my life theory. Deepak entered my cubby by mistake. He was looking for someone else, got lost and stopped in to ask for directions. I never have drop-ins. So I looked up in surprise and inadvertently turned to face him. And immediately noticed that he didn't react. It was so stunning that I detained him with unnecessary questions and elaborate directions, basically testing him. Not a flinch. He did his own investigations and came back a few days later, deliberately this time. After that, he often dropped in, whenever he was in my section of the office. He was the closest thing to a friend I had and I didn't really know how to manage the relationship. I had no experience. I noticed his eyes never shrank from my face, never skittered here and there across it, never tried too obviously to look or not to look at it. It was as if he simply didn't see the monster. 
One day he messaged me, asking me to meet him in the canteen at lunch. I declined politely. He apologized immediately, said he'd just assumed I'd be free in the lunch break. I admitted I was free. Then why don't you come? He charged me. Hadn't he noticed I never came to the canteen? I asked. I ate in my room, alone. In only minutes, he was barging into my cubicle. He was black-faced and evidently furious. I jumped up. Sit down, I exclaimed, and have some water. What on earth has made you so mad? Deepak is the most even-tempered of men. I know him much better now, but even then, I'd figured that much out. You, he said, between clenched teeth. I... What have I done? I haven't done anything. I protested my innocence. Why didn't I come down to the canteen? He wanted to know, holding my eyes fiercely with his own. I plunked down in my chair, the breath pouring noisily out of me. Deepak, your own self-control is phenomenal and you've never indicated by so much as a flicker that you see anything crazy about my face. But even you must surely see the monster sitting on it. He leaned across the desk and grabbed me by my shoulders. I'd never seen a person so angry in my life. You are more than just your face! He staggered out through his clenched teeth. Twenty-eight years of hiding and skulking and seeking the shadows is not easily tossed aside. But Deepak was immovable. He argued more angrily than anything I'd ever heard. He was passionate and furious and kind and sweet and incredibly stupid and indomitable. So finally, I gave in and told him I'd come once but he better be prepared for the result. I don't know what he did, for he has always maintained he did nothing. But I know that can't possibly be true. I got a few long-distance waves and thumbs-ups, and one or two people walked by our table saying, Good to see you here, Roshni. But most just went on with their lives. I was so keyed up for shame and disaster that I'd have been in tears had it not been for the few gap-mouthed starers who kept things normal for me. My mind ranged over all this as I checked my appearance one more time. I'd considered an old-fashioned hat with a small veil. But it would have looked odd with the sari. And what Deepak would do to me if I arrived wearing that made me almost giggle with horror. I was as ready as I'd ever be. I heard my phone ring and it was Deepak, so I collected my things and the beautiful garlands and ran down the stairs. We travelled in comfortable silence, occasionally exchanging grins. And I took several calming, deep breaths as Deepak patiently eased the car into a narrow slot. Public places were always such a challenge, even with Deepak beside me. I steadied myself for humiliation. He locked the car and we hustled off towards the magistrate's office, hand in hand. At the curb, 
A little girl, maybe four or five years old, and her granny stood in front of us, also waiting to cross. The granny noticed our clothes and immediately cottoned on. She turned and faced us squarely and raised her right hand to us. Be blessed always and cherish each other forever. And the little girl reached out for my hand and looking me straight in the eye said, You look so beautiful. The lights changed and they crossed the road and left. And Deepak and I just stood there staring after them. Me through tear-drenched eyes. Deepak grabbed me by the elbow and hurried me across the road just in time and into the bustle of the magistrate's chambers. It was hot and sweaty and dense with people and loud with chattering. But in my heart, it was spring and flowers bloomed and violins played love songs and sheer joy pulsed like a cool stream through my veins. <laughs>